Hey, welcome family to my Irreligious Life podcast with your host, Jermaine Thomas, a.k.a. The Professor. Deconstructing and deconverting from your faith is a very difficult journey. The process can have psychological and emotional implications. Join us as we have a heartwarming and engaging dialogue around this and so much more. Let's get it, family. We stand here at the precipice of Advent, a season of expectant waiting, of hearts preparing for the coming light. But for many of us African-Americans, this waiting carries a deeper weight, a yearning not just for the birth of a savior, but for liberation of our faith itself. For too long, Christianity has been used as a tool of oppression. Its teachings twisted to justify the subjugation of our people. Eurocentric interpretations painted our rich African traditions as pagan, our vibrant cultures as inferior. We were told to abandon our drums, our songs, our very essence, and embrace a pale reflection of a faith that never truly belonged to us. But Advent, with its promise of renewal, beckons us to a different path. It whispers of a decolonized Christianity, a faith rooted in empowerment and liberation, a faith that celebrates the fullness of who we are as African-American children of God. Decolonizing our faith is not about rejecting Christ, but it's about reclaiming Him, It's about remembering the radical message of love, justice, and equality that lies at the heart of the gospel. It's about reclaiming our agency as interpreters of scriptures and finding resonance within its pages that speak to the unique joy and sorrows of the black experience. Imagine Advent sermons that resonate with the rhythm of our drums, that draw inspiration from the stories of our ancestors who defied oppression with unwavering faith. Imagine him song in the rich tapestry of our diverse African voices, voices that carry the echoes of resilience and hope. Decolonizing our faith is not about tearing down, but about building up upon the foundation of our ancestors' sacrifices. It's about honoring their legacy by weaving the threads of our African heritage into the fabric of our Christian tapestry. It's about creating a space where our cultures and traditions are not seen as burdens to shed, but as gifts to be shared and celebrated. This Advent, let us commit to lighting a fire within our hearts, a fire that burns with a desire for a more just and equitable faith community. Let us challenge the status quo, raise our voices in song and in scripture, and demand a place at a table where our interpretation of the divine are heard and valued. Remember, brothers and sisters, we are not simply waiting for the light to come. We are the light. We are the embers of a revolution ready to ignite a brighter advent, a more inclusive Christianity, and a future where our faith truly reflects the richness and the beauty of who we are. So let us go forth hand in hand and decolonize our faith, one song, one sermon, one act of love at a time. Let us build a church where the chains of oppression are broken, where our voices rise in anthems of liberation, and where the light of Christ shines not just for us, but for the whole world. Free Palestine. May this Advent be a season of healing, of empowerment, and of hope. May it be the dawn of a decolonized Christianity where every child of God, regardless of their color or their culture, can truly find their place at the table. Advent season is a great time to reflect on where we've been and to anticipate the dawning of a new day. 
Here is such a reality to sit with. Colonized Christianity sought to erase and devalue the cultural and spiritual practices of indigenous communities. Colonial Christianity justified and perpetuated systems of oppression, such as racism, sexism, and classism. And it seems that decolonizing, which involves individuals reclaiming their agency and authority over their own spiritual beliefs and practices. The liberation of it all is that through a decolonized lens, one can come to the recognizing and realization. And this can be deeply healing for individuals who felt disconnected from their heritage due to the influence of colonial Christianity by decolonizing it. That while honoring the present day traditions, we also can reconnect with our ancestral knowledge and wisdom. And this can be empowering, especially for those who felt disempowered by a hierarchical structure of colonial Christianity. And it can lead to a more authentic and meaningful personal faith experience for us all. And listen, let's turn our attention to a few things that I want to highlight in part two of our podcast series of exploring the psychosocial impact of high demand religion on African-Americans and to understand where we're going and talking about where we've been and having a conversation, even during this Advent season, um, it's just something for us to digest and for us to sit with and to think about. But, but listen to this. Most black Americans say religion is very important to them. Black adults more likely than us adults overall to believe in God of the Bible. Most black adults say that the Bible is the word of God but no consensus over whether it should be understood literally. Widespread belief by black adults in a God that engages with the world. Just over half of black Americans say belief in God is necessary for morality. Large majorities of black Americans believe in the power of prayer and evil spirits. Majorities of black Protestants and Catholics say opposing racism and sexism are essential to their faith. Half of black Americans say it's a religious duty to convert non-believers. Now listen to this as they is talk about uh, the history of slavery. When they were first captured and taken to America, some enslaved black people were Christian, more were Muslims, but the largest number by far were followers of traditional religions common in West Africa at the time. Many of these African belief systems included a supreme distant God who created the world and a pantheon of lower gods and ancestor spirits who were active in daily life. This religious heritage also included the use of herbal medicine and charms applied by specialists known as conjurers who were believed to be able to heal diseases, harm an enemy, or make someone fall in love. Historians say access to a conjurer gave enslaved people a sense of empowerment and control over their lives while allowing for a worldview that distinguished them from slaveholders and connected them to Africa. Interactions between enslaved people and Christian missionaries and other evangelists led to the spread of Christianity among black Americans. Many slave owners initially resisted these evangelistic efforts partially out of concern that if enslaved people became Christians, they would see themselves as their owners equals. By 1706, this fear by slave owners has spurred legislation in at least six colonies declaring that an enslaved person's baptism did not entail their freedom. 
In addition, many enslaved people who did become Christians had to deal with restrictions by masters who forbid them from attending church or prayer meetings. To get around these restrictions and for alternatives to sermons by white clergy asking them to obey their owners, many Christian enslaved people held secret services with distinct styles of praying, singing, and worship. These services were typically held in their cabins or in nearby woods, gullies, ravines, and thickets. Historians say the biblical story of the Israelites' escape from Egypt provided a good deal of inspiration to the enslaved people. This was reflected in coded lyrics to some of their religious songs or spirituals. In Go Down Moses, for example, the lyrics plead with the Hebrew prophet to tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Frederick Douglass wrote that when he was a child before he had escaped slavery, a keen observer might have detected in our repeated singing of O Canaan, sweet Canaan, I am bound for the land of Canaan, something more than a hope of reaching heaven. We meant to reach the north, and the north was our Canaan. Toward the end of the Civil War, and its decades immediately afterward, black Protestant denominations cemented their place among deeply in the U.S. religious landscape, especially after the emancipation. The AME and the AME Zion churches sent large numbers of missionaries to the South, leading many black Christians to leave mostly white churches and join predominantly black ones. The AMC grew from 20,000 members just before the start of the Civil War to over 400 thousand in 1884 while the AME Zion church membership jumped they get into these statistics about the uh the AME church and listen this study is interesting and I wanted to highlight some different excerpts from here check this out another type of Protestant Christianity Pentecostalism developed following in the United States around the turn of the 20th century, the largest black Pentecostal denomination, the Church of God in Christ, formed in 1897 and gained steam after a revival in Los Angeles, California, known as the Azusa Street Revival, began in 1906. The revival led by a black preacher, the Reverend William J. Seymour, is credited by scholars with spurring the growth of Pentecostalism in the United States and subsequently around the world. Scholars say predominantly black churches of the 19th and 20th centuries played important roles in the black society outside the sphere of religion. In a period when discrimination barred black people from access to various public amenities, many black churches offered job training programs, insurance cooperatives, circulating libraries and athletic clubs. While numerous measures of religious commitment, black Americans are more religious than the general population. Like other Americans, they have become more likely to identify as religiously unaffiliated, that is, as atheist, agnostic, and nothing in particular. Still, black Americans are less likely than U.S. adults overall to be religiously unaffiliated. And they give some statistics and things like that. I I wanted to... um, to highlight that, I think that this data is apparent that spirituality is important to many African-Americans. And so as their trust in religious institutions, and, and, and that's true for many of us. So we can only imagine how high demand religion could deeply impact African-Americans. And so here are some specific psychosocial impacts, high demand religion exploits African-Americans' deep spiritual beliefs to manipulate and control them. 
this can lead to feelings of betrayal and spiritual confusion. High demand religions may discourage or prohibit members from participating in traditional African-American cultural practices, leading to erosion of cultural identity or even uh, the demonizing of African spirituality, which was a lot of my um, indoctrination in uh, fundamental charismatic Christianity. And that may be true of you or it may not be your direct experience or you may not see it in that light. But the reality is true that there are a lot of inherited beliefs that carried over from colonial Christianity that has impacted um, us in some form or fashion in the African-American church. And this is what decolonizing can do is to help us make those distinctions so that we can find the true liberation and healing essence of who we are and what we're rooted in without being ashamed or demonizing our spiritual inheritance, our heritage culturally uh, with respect to spirituality and what the contribution that was to the larger context of theism and then not ignoring African spirituality and philosophy or cosmology when it comes to speaking of theism in a larger context. I think it's important to note that, but at the same time, uh, equally to note the harm that fundamental religion has had on us. So listen to this. High demand religions are characterized by their obsessive control over member lives, and they can have significant psychosocial impact on African-Americans uh, and, and they can extirpate existing racial and socioeconomic disparities, contribute to mental health problems and limit individuals opportunities for personal growth. HDRs often target marginalized communities, and these religions often exploit members' financial resources, which can extirpate existing economic disparities that African Americans face in many urban settings. And so we get uh, the past, the big fancy car is played out in, in pop culture or, or, or poke fun at. The pastor is always characterized as this money grubbing individual. At the same time, the history that I characterize within um, this Pew Research shows us why we look to our religious institutions and why there's sometimes uh, a, a blind allegiance to them that that's inherited, you know, is 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 a part of the 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 indoctrination, right? That we receive not willingly, like I've stated many times before, that I was born into a Baptist family, but. Nonetheless, and let's land this plane. And I thank you all for tracking with us here on My Irreligious Life podcast. HDRs often target marginalized communities, um, as we stated, and the excessive controlling demands placed on members of high demand religions can lead to a variety of mental health problems, would also include anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress disorder. The pressure to conform to the group's expectations, the fear of punishment, and the sense of isolation can all contribute to psychological distress. HDRs often discourage or prohibit mental health treatment, making it more difficult for members to seek help. HDRs often impose rigid and restrictive rules on their members, which can limit their opportunities for personal growth and development. Uh, these rules maybe dictate everything from clothing choices to career paths, leaving little room for individual expression and, and exploration. The impact of high demand religion, fundamental religion in those contexts. 
and more studies are coming out about religious trauma and people really giving distinction and characterization to church hurt that is not just a, a buzzword, but there's a story to be told in one of the stories in this context that we've captured is uh, a, a book by Cheryl Brown called Mafia Ministry, A Crying Shame. And, and her story and excerpts that we're highlighting here is uh, a, a true case study of the reality and the harm of high demand religion and her being a single African-American mom and caught up in the high and the highlights of the culture of prosperity gospel. Um, I've been there. I've know of Cheryl's story and the sister got receipts. I encourage you to go get her book. So this is from an excerpt from chapter two. Um, it's called Sacrificial Giving. And so I'm, I'm not going to, you know, say the name. She actually state names in this book. Um, so you go get the book. You'll see the names. This is a, a high profile uh, person. Cheryl herself have stated that she's been approached by high profile media. It is not just her telling the story. There's other books about this particular ministry that's out there. Um, too. And so again, like I said, this is the guy receipts, but let me just uh, read this excerpt here. Sacrificial giving WHC was a non-denominational church with a charismatic healing, prophetic and prosperity twist. When I was there, I learned a lot about the concept of sacrificial giving as I did at FCC, which is a church out of Indiana. So I give that at least um, and this is how she got connected to this other ministry from FCC out in Indiana. Pastor M was my new pastor. He was a couple of years younger than me, and he seemed very nice. He was pretty much in control of every aspect of the church service. His church attendees knew exactly when it when to give God praise, give money, and when to sit down. There wasn't a lot of hopping around and being out of order at WHC. It was extremely organized and structured. Security was also very tight. His main security guard was a huge Samoan guy named L, who was like a gentle giant to everyone. Under the code of sacrificial giving, I gave everything that I could, my time, my heart and soul, and even my last few dollars. I believed in the ministry with my entire being, and I was so excited for my son and I to be accepted there. I was called upon often to come up in the front of the church and to speak or to testify. I was very poor financially, yet I had victory in Jesus. I also knew how to deal with the people that were coming into the ministry, especially the poor ones. I knew that God was taking me to a different destination in life to advance his kingdom. And all that I had ever endured in life was because he was preparing me for this ministry. And this was very serious. Not only was I serving a man of God on the forefront of ministry, but I was under the umbrella of the entire family. I was being equipped for ministry for such a time as this, as I was told. I felt that there was something great that would come out of this whole situation from the start. Pastor Michael and Jessica came from such a powerful teacher as Pastor B that I gave them great credit without a second thought. Besides, they had been so nice to me when it was Offering time, I was a cheerful giver. Sometimes I didn't know how my son and I was going to make it financially, but we always seemed to. 
My son was even excited to give his last bit of change. They talked heavily about the woman in the Bible who gave the little that she had and how she was honored more than the rich man who gave plenty because of her sacrificing. She was blessed abundantly. So I gave. And when I ran out of money, I would give my jury. And when I ran out of jury, I would give my time. I was always willing to give my time. A lot of the people who came to the church had relocated from other cities and countries because they believed that they were called to be a part of Pastor B's ministry. They packed up and came down on faith without anything, not even a place to stay. They always thought that they would see Pastor B at a service, but he was never present. Y'all got to go get the book. But listen, check us out and we'll continue this dialogue in part three. Hey, family, thank you for tuning in to my Irreligious Life podcast with your host, Jermaine Thomas, your go to podcast for religious commentary and so much more. My Irreligious Life is a subsidiary of Black Koreans Media and hit us up for sponsorship opportunities, family. God bless.